This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. Turn your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings. You'll be in 2 Kings chapter 6. You're taking a brief break this morning from our series in 1 Peter and looking forward to picking that up again next week, 2 Kings chapter 6. And while you turn there, I have a question for you. Have you ever stopped and considered how much as a culture we hate waiting? As a a culture, there, there might not be anything we despise more than waiting. I read a Recently, an article by the New York Times entitled, Why Waiting is Torture. It was very very interesting. They talked about a study that was done in the Houston airport where where they were finding that they they were just receiving an incredible amount of complaints about the wait time at the baggage claim. So in an effort to cut down on their their complaints, they they added some additional baggage handlers and they were able to to drop the, the wait time by, by about 50%, which, which is pretty significant. And yet, still, they found complaints barely dropped off at all, even though, though now the, the average wait time was only about eight minutes a person, which is completely within industry standards. And as they, they studied the issue more, what they found was that it, what it, it took was it, it, it took the person a minute to get to the baggage claim, and then they would stand around waiting with nothing to do for the remaining seven minutes. So they came up with a brilliant idea. What they did was they ended up moving the baggage claim. So now someone would walk seven minutes and they would only stand around waiting for one minute. Same amount of time ultimately to get their bags. Eight minutes it took. And yet the complaints went down to almost zero. We hate waiting. Now, what the article doesn't address, which is, is really the, the bigger story here, is why are people taking the time to call and complain? You figure that, com- that, that call must be half an hour to do to complain about an eight-minute wait. But, but that's a, a whole different story there. But we hate waiting. And yet the, the Christian life is often characterized by waiting. In our series in, in 1 Peter, we've been in the past couple months, we've been seeing how the, the Christian life is a life of exile. We, we live in a world that is, is not ultimately our home. We're, we're passing through, and, and one of the realities of this life of exile is we live a life of constant waiting. We're those who are, are waiting for Christ's return. We, we long for our true home, for Him to come and bring us there. And in the meantime, we wait. And while we, we wait, we, we, we find ourselves living in a, in a world where there are a lot of things that, that are not as they should be. So we find ourselves constantly asking and waiting on the Lord to, to move and to intervene in this, this brokenness we find ourselves in. In fact, Scripture has a, a phrase for this, this life of waiting we, we find ourselves in, and Scripture calls it waiting on the Lord. As God's people, we're we're often referred to as those who wait on the Lord. Pastor Mark Rogop 
gives a, a helpful definition of what exactly it means to, to wait on the Lord. He says, to wait on the Lord means to place your hope in Him, to trust that God is the one who can deliver you. Your entire confidence rests on Him. This is what it means to wait on the Lord. And, and yet, isn't this really a description of, of the entire life of faith we live? After all, what is, what is faith? It's we're, we're trusting and waiting on God to do what, what we can't do for ourselves. Scripture tells us that, that this waiting on the Lord should be what, what characterizes our days. See this in Hosea chapter 12, verse 6. It says, So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. There's this continual waiting we do. Or Psalm 25.5, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. I know as, as, as we're talking about waiting on the Lord, each, each of us has certain things we've been praying for the Lord to, to move in. Areas where we're experiencing the, the brokenness of life in a, a fallen world. And, and we've been waiting. Some of us for, for years. Some of us for, for decades even. Sure, as I, I say this, different things come to mind. Struggles in your family that you, you, you want God to, to do a work in. The, the unsaved loved ones that you've been praying for for all these years. The chronic health issue that, that you or a loved one faces. Maybe that, that struggle in your, your marriage that, that you're praying and, and asking God to move in. There are things in our lives that, that we know we're, we're powerless to do anything about. So we trust in the one who can do something about it. I, I think that, that's why waiting can, can be so difficult. In, in, in waiting, we, we feel and we acknowledge our powerlessness. right? It, we, we feel the reality that, that we don't have control. And it, it forces us to, to grapple with certain questions. But questions that, if we're honest, we, we might not even like to, to verbalize. Questions that we might know the, the right answer to, but yet, yet we still struggle with them. Questions like, can, can I, I really trust God with this? Does God really care about this situation I find myself in? Do, do I ultimately trust that even if it doesn't work out the way I want it to, that, that God's ultimately doing what's best, that He will bring good from this brokenness? Do I, do I trust Him to, to help me in the midst of this brokenness? And it's because of how hard waiting can be that the, the writer of 2 Kings has included this part of Israel's history in our text for us this morning. Like 1 Peter, 2 Kings is also, also written to those who find themselves in exile. And they're, they're facing the challenge of waiting on the Lord in a, in a difficult place, in a place that's not their home. And like us, they're, 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 as they're waiting, they're, they're asking these questions. Does God really care what I'm going through? Can I, can I really trust Him in the midst of this brokenness? And these are the, the questions that our, our text speaks to this morning as, as we read an account 
of God's people in some very desperate times. And, and just, just a, a brief warning, the, the, the Bible speaks to the brokenness of our world and it, it, it doesn't sugarcoat things, but, but wants us to, to really see what's going on. And, and, and there's some pretty gruesome aspects of our text this morning, so just want to prepare you and give you a warning up front. Titles of this morning's message is Why We Wait. And I'm going to read the first half of our text starting in verse 24 up front, and then we're going to, in the second half, we'll work our way through some of the, the part of the text and highlight some of the different aspects. A longer text than we, we normally have, but we want to, to see how, how everything plays out in this, this particular account. So we're going to first read 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24 through chapter 7, verse 2. It says, Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched the man from his presence but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the cap captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading, now the preaching of his word. We have three sections in our text we're going to look at this morning. So you know where we're, we're going. Three points. Point number one, the challenge to our waiting. Point number two, the posture of our waiting. And point number three, the good news for our waiting. So let's jump in and, and look at point number one. The challenge to our waiting. See, in verse 24, our, our text opens up describing the just the darkest, 
darkest of days. The capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, has been under siege by the, the Syrian army. As the siege goes on, food becomes more and more scarce. People are dying of hunger. Economically, things have just hit rock bottom. If you're discouraged about our high inflation and gas prices, well, for them, donkey's heads and pigeon droppings were going for exorbitant prices. Things that would otherwise, in normal circumstances, just be considered absolutely worthless. People's pantries are bare, and there's just this overall feeling of desperation in the air. It's in the, the midst of this brokenness that we see the king of Israel is out taking a walk along the palace wall. Perhaps he's just trying to, to clear his thoughts a little bit. In verse 26, as he's walking along the wall, a, a woman calls up to him asking for help. Here we get our, our first clue that, that all is not well with this king's soul. Verse 27, notice how the, the king replies. He says, if the Lord will not help, how shall I? The, the, the woman has, has mentioned nothing about God in her request. There, there is this immediate accusation about the, the character and the goodness of God that comes out. The implication is God just doesn't care about us. Notice he says the Lord will not help. Right? He doesn't say he can't. He says he, he won't. There, there's anger and bitterness in his words. And what we, we, we see here in the King Friends, this, this is the, the danger we can face when we find ourselves going through difficult things. If we're not careful what, what, what happens, we can allow our difficult circumstances to, to push us to make certain conclusions about God and, and what He's doing. Author Paul Tripp talks about this when he, when he says the following. He says, very few people wake up one morning and decide to change their theology. Changes in a person's belief system are seldom that self-conscious. In ways we don't often recognize, these experiences are hermeneutical. That is, they, they become lenses we use to interpret life. Unfortunately, we're seldom aware that this is happening. The emotions we feel as we first go through Difficult experiences are not static. They morph into subtle but extremely influential conclusions about God, ourselves, others, and life. This is something we, we have to be extremely careful about when we find ourselves in the inevitable trials of life. And this is what we see here is, is happening to the king. The king that has determined that clearly because of what's happening to me, God isn't good. And not only isn't he good, he's, he's heartless. He could help, but he doesn't. And the king is allowing his, his circumstances to, to draw these conclusions for him. Verse 27, the, the king follows up with a sarcastic question. He asks the woman where exactly she expects him to, to get this help from. He asks, you know, th from the threshing floor or from the, the wine press? In other words, he's kind of saying, like, yeah, sure, no problem. I'll just swing over to Acme and, and pick something up for you. Say, lay the, the cupboards are bare. I don't, I don't have anything to spare for you. Verse 28, he, he asks her, well, what, what exactly is, what is your trouble? And, and, and what, what he hears is, is a, a story of just such utter 
desperation and, and brokenness and depravity that, that he probably never would have imagined or dreamed he would hear in any of his days as king. See, the, the woman is looking for him to weigh in and mediate on a deal she, she made with her neighbor where they, they both agreed to take turns cooking and eating their very own children to avoid starvation. I warned you, this would be gruesome. And, and she's appealing to the king because her and her neighbor have already eaten her child, and now her neighbor has hidden her son and, and is not living up to, to her end of the bargain. Just think about the, the utter insanity and horror of this. Not, not only has this, this happened, this, this atrocity that, that these women have, have eaten their, their children, but, but things have gotten so bad that she's going to the king of Israel, appealing to him about this, asking him to, to weigh in on this as if it's some kind of like property dispute or something. I don't, I, don't, I don't think things could get much darker than what we see here. And the, the king hears this, and he just, just loses it. This, this just puts him over the edge. It puts him into a, a rage. In verse 30, we see he tears his clothes, and, and underneath his, his royal garments... He's already wearing sackcloth and ashes, which is interesting. It seems as if almost he was trying to, to hide that, as if he was trying to, to put on a good appearance. Things aren't that bad, maybe for morale's sake, when, when the reality was inwardly he's, he's in despair and, 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 and he's falling apart. He, he reaches a boiling point. In verse 31, he says, may, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha the son of Shaphat remains on his shoulders today. He said, we, we, I, I'm going to take Elisha out. Elisha is done. And we, we, we know as we, we can go through difficult times, isn't it often human nature? We, we look for someone to blame for, for, for when it's difficult. And, and here he's, he's blaming God's prophet for this current distress. And friends, as we observe the, the, the way the king reacts to what's going on here, no, no doubt it would be an understatement to say, this is difficult. This is, this is beyond difficult, what, what's going on here. I, I can't even imagine living through the type of suffering that, that, that they're living through here. There's every reason for the king to be grieving, to be angry, to be sorrowful. Yet, yet what we see is, is the king is not taking these emotions and going to the right place with them. Author Alistair Groves helpfully points out, engaging emotions without engaging God is a recipe for disaster. Our emotions are fundamentally designed to force us to engage Him. And the great lies that we can and should deal with our emotions apart from bringing them to the Lord and, and here we see, rather than going to the Lord, the, the king is, is looking to engage his emotions in a, a very different way by murdering Elisha. And, 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 and friends, this is something you and I will face, right? When, when life doesn't go as planned, perhaps you've, you've had those, those moments this week, perhaps you've seen these moments of life not going as planned go from moments to now their, their seasons in life. You've prayed for your circumstances to change, and you, you keep on 
praying and it just doesn't seem like anything is changing. And not only now do, do things not get better, but it seems like things go from bad to worse. And, and, and the, the question we will face in these moments of distress is, where do we turn? Where, where do we bring our sorrows and anxieties? What, what, what do we do with them? Where, where do we bring our, our grief? Do we, like the, the king, just kind of bottle everything up and eventually explode? Do we decide that the Lord is no longer to be trusted and, and we need to take matters into our own hands? Or do we bring them to the Lord? Pastor Jim Andrews says the following. He says, One difference between godly people and those who aren't is that the godly will intercept these emotions bundle them up with their burdens, and lay both right where they belong before the Lord. It says they don't allow these things to hijack their lives to the point of drawing them away from God and diverting them from the highways of righteousness, at least not for very long. The struggle to keep aroused emotions within proper boundaries is won by putting a conscious leash on them and leading them like junkyard dogs right to the throne of grace. I love that, that picture. Rather than suppressing our emotions or as the, the king is venting them, we, we take them to the Lord, leading them like junkyard dogs. At, at times pulling these unruly, resistant things that don't want to go to the Lord, that don't want to go to the throne of grace, but that's where we're taking them. That's where they need to be. Friends, God invites us to do this with our troubles Bring them to Him. Psalm 62, verse 8 was in our call to worship this morning. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Psalm 61, 2 says, When my heart is faint, I love how other translations say, When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. God has given us our emotions to, to lead us to Him. When, when, when I'm at the point of being utterly overwhelmed, I must go to Him. Even if I don't feel like it, I must lead my, my emotions like junkyard dogs to the throne of grace. We bring our pain. We bring our sorrow. We bring our burdens. We bring our anxieties to Him. This is, this is what Scripture calls lamenting. We go to God and we're honest with Him about how we feel. Again, Pastor Mark Rogop in his excellent book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercies, which I know some of you guys are, are studying together, uh, says this. He says, trust looks like talking to God, sharing our complaints, seeking God's help, and then recommitting ourselves to believe in who God is and what He has done, even as the trial continues. Lament is how we endure. It is how we trust Listen, it is how we wait. Friends, lament is how we wait. We bring our burdens and cares to the Lord over and over again. As we pour our hearts out to Him, we, we posture ourselves in a way where we, hear, we want to hear back from the Lord and what He has to say about our situation. And this leads us to the second point of our text, the posture in our waiting, point number two. Verse 32, the scene shifts. 
now we find the, the prophet Elisha sitting in his home with the, the elders of Israel. Like the, the king, Elisha is also living in the, the midst of, of this famine. He's in the, the same city. He's experiencing the same difficulties. Uh, contrary to what some teach, following the Lord doesn't give us immunity to the, the hardship and brokenness of this world. Jesus said, in this life you will have troubles. And while Elisha finds himself in a similar circumstance to the king, we see the, the posture that Elisha has taken is very different. While the king is, is anxious, pacing around the wall, filled with anger and fury, verse 32, the, the author makes a point to, to include that Elisha's found sitting. There, there's, a, there's a contrast he, he's drawing there. There seems to be a, a calmness of spirit, a, a restfulness, a, a peace to him. Most importantly, we see that while the, the king is interpreting his, his troubles of, of who God is and, and how he feels based off his circumstances, Elisha is, is processing things very differently. There's a different voice he's listening to. We see this in verse 32. We see that the, the king has sent a messenger to do his, his dirty work and take out Elisha, but Elisha's in, in fellowship with the Lord. He's, he's listening to the, the voice of the Lord, and the Lord has revealed to Elisha, this man is on his way. So Elisha tells the, the elders to, to hold the door shut and guard the door for for when he comes. Verse 33, sure enough, the messenger arrives, and like his master, first words out of his mouth are, are also accusations against God. He says, this trouble is from the Lord. God is to blame for this. Again, there, there, there's this, this underlying assumption that, that God is cruel and, and uncaring to allow us to go through this. The the way he just kind of shows up and just blurts this right out, it's almost as if he's seeking to, to justify the act of murder he just showed up for. This is why I'm here to do that. The Lord, I'm doing this because it's God's fault. While, while we don't know the, the king's relationship to the Lord prior to, to our account here, uh, we're told that the messenger is someone who, who claims to have been waiting on the Lord himself. He asks the question, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And isn't that such an important question to ask? Don't, don't you and I at times need to just go to a trusted friend when we're going through hard things and say, why should I be waiting on the Lord? Remind me. Remind me of why God is, is trustworthy. Remind me of, of how He's been faithful. Now, now the question the, the messenger is asking here, I, for the fact he's shown up to kill Elisha, I, I don't think he was looking for an answer to that question. I think it's more of a, a statement so that's why we don't see Elisha kind of pull him aside and sit him down and say, hey, let me tell you why. Let me, let me tell you of God's faithfulness. Let me remind you of that. Let me remind you of all the times that God has come through. Let me tell you of his great love for us. We, we, we don't see that here. But what we do see in chapter 7, verse 1, is, is what Elijah directs him to is really what he needs most at the moment. He says, hear the word of the Lord Friends, as we wait on the Lord, this is what we need more than anything else. We need to hear God's voice speak into our pain, speak into our confusion, speak into the hard things of life that we're going through. We need to hear the word of the Lord. We need God's word to reorient us in our perspective. We live in a world where there's so many voices competing 
for our attention, right? Social media, the news, you know, our, our own, as we saw our own emotions. So many voices telling us how to make sense of things, how to interpret our circumstances. Oftentimes this is done in clever 30-second videos called TikToks or 280-character tweets. And, and yet, here we see that there's one voice above all other voices we need to hear. And that is we need to hear the word of the Lord. Think of Psalm 119, verse 25, that, that speaks away about the way God's word meets us in our most desperate of circumstances. The psalmist says, my soul clings to the dust. It's pretty bad. Give me life according to your word. Or in verse 28, the psalmist says, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Or in verse 50 of Psalm 119, it says, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. This is what God's Word does. This is why we cling to God's Word in the midst of hard things. His Word gives us life. I'd encourage you as to, to just this week uh, to, to be reminded of, of how we need to hear God's Word, of how valuable God's Word is for us. Psalm 119 is an excellent, longest chapter in the Bible, but break it apart, do a little bit each day. Excellent place to, to be reminded of how important God's Word is in difficult seasons of our life. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Elisha tells them, here, here, here's what God is going to do. God has seen the affliction of His people. He, he hears their prayer and He's going to, to do something amazing. It says that the Lord has revealed that by this time tomorrow, barley and wheat will actually be, be being sold at Samaria's gates for for rock bottom prices, right? It's a big summer blowout. Something that, that just sounds so completely impossible. And, 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 and the messenger, it says, refuses to believe that something like this could even happen. He says that the Lord himself should make windows in heaven. Could this thing be? There's no way, he's saying. It's interesting, a, a moment ago, the the messenger was, was blaming everything on God, saying this is the Lord's doing. Almost as if he's saying God's in control, God can do all things. He's not doing anything about it. And here he's, he's saying, well, even if God wanted to do something about it, he couldn't. Right? He's kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth here. But for those like Elisha that have postured themselves to, to hear the word of the Lord, this, this, there's this expectation that God is able to do this. There's this, this reality that as we immerse ourselves in God's Word, God can strengthen and, and feed our faith to believe that, that He can do the things that seem impossible, the things that, that we can't do for ourselves. had a conversation with, with someone yesterday that, just a short conversation, but just found it very encouraging, just a, a good reminder. Um, they were saying that the Lord had convicted them, not just to, to go to the Lord in prayer, but, but to pray expectantly. You know, I, I feel like often we can go to the Lord and we bring all these requests, but are we, are we going with expectation that the Lord is going to move in our lives? We, 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 don't, we don't always know what that's going to look like, but do we go expectantly, knowing that God can, can do really in an instant what, what would take us 10,000 lifetimes to, to try to accomplish? And that kind of faith, that, that kind of 
expectancy that the Lord is going to move is nourished in the soil of being in God's Word. It's it's in God's Word as we hear the Word of the Lord that He reminds us what He is able to do. It says in Isaiah 64.4 that God is a God who acts for those who wait for Him. And Elisha tells the, the messenger, he says, you will see this with your own eyes. You know, th- this is going to happen, but you shall not eat of it. Because of your unbelief, you will not experience the joy of God's deliverance. That leads us to our final section of our, our text here. Point number three, the good news for our waiting. Verse three, the, the, scene, the scene changes once more. And uh, we're introduced to a group of the, the most unlikely of heroes. And uh, just a, a quick aside here, but as we wait on the Lord and, and, and we wait for Him to move, he, he often does this in the most unexpected of ways. So, so, much, so I think there can be times where we're praying for the Lord for an answer, and we're praying for Him to move in a certain way, and we don't even realize that, that He's answering those prayers because we're expecting it. In a, in a different way. So we, 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 as God's people, as we wait, we expect the unexpected. And th- this is one of those, those cases here. And here we find four lepers. They're, they're sitting at the entrance gate of Samaria. They're, they're pondering their next move. These are men who have been rejected by society, so they're, they're forced to live on the, the outskirts of the city. And the, these, these men start to, to reason together and to think like, hey, we're, we're going to die if we don't do something. In the, in the city, they're, they're just as bad off as we are. They have no food there, so we, we, we can't go into the city for food. And the, the only place that has any food around here is the camp of the Syrian army. Desperate times call for desperate measures. So they decide they're, they're going to, to show up at the camp of the Syrians to ask for food and hope that the Syrians don't kill them. When they, they do. Verse 4, their, their, their reasoning is essentially, well, if, if they kill us, we're, we're going to die of starvation anyway. Either way, we're, we're dying, so we might as well give this a try. And as verse 5, as they, they go to the, the Syrian army, they, they, they find something that they were absolutely not expecting to find. And that, that's a, the, the camp is a ghost town. There, there, there's no one there, and there, there's just this eerie silence. Looks like everyone just took off in a haste. It's here the writer of 2 Kings interjects and, and helps us make sense of, of, of what we're seeing here. He says in verse 6 and 7, he says, For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So Syrians take off. They're terrified. They leave everything behind. And, and, and we see in, in verse 8, the lepers are just like, man, we, we hit the jackpot here. So they, they went into the tent, a tent and ate and drank, and they, they carried off silver and gold and clothing. Then they do this in another tent, and they're, they're just like kids in a candy store. They're eating and drinking. They're trying on different clothes, putting on different hats or whatever they had. And they're, they're saying to themselves, man, this, this sure beats leftover donkey heads and pigeon droppings, right? Th- this is the life 
These lepers go from walking to what they, they believe is most likely going to be their execution to, to rich beyond their wildest dreams. Then something happens in verse 9 as they're partaking of this spoil and, and enjoying their treasure. Something changes. They have this, this moment of realization where we're not doing right. This is a, a day of, of good news. They say if, if we're silent and we wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. The word in Hebrew for punishment here is actually the word used for guilt or iniquity or, or sin. What, what they're saying is it would be a sin to keep this good news to ourselves. This isn't just about us. There's, there's something bigger going on here. We're, we're part of a, a bigger story. We have to tell others this good news. You ever notice there, there's something about good news that, that you just have to share it with others. You can't keep it bottled in. If it's good news, it, it, it must be shared. There's a whole other sermon there with it. But in verse 10 through 15, that, that's, that's, that's what they do. And we're, we're, For time's sake, we're not going to, to read through those verses, but they go and they share this good news. And we're told in verse 16 that the people of Israel then go out and plunder the camp of the Syrians. God has come through. Tonight we're feasting. Writer of, of 2 Kings, as he's helping us make sense of everything that, that, that just took place here, in verse 17 through 20, makes it a point to let us know that the, the messenger who said that this could never happen does get to see that it, it actually did happen. But, but in a, a twist of, of irony, he, he, he ends up being trampled in, in the, the city gate as the, the food is being distributed, which is what Elisha said was going to happen. He said, you're going to see this, but you're not going to, to eat of it. And there, there's a, a, a reason the, the writer of 2 Kings is so careful to include these details. He's saying that there's a, a lesson here. Essentially, to boil down, is don't be this guy, right? But, but, but the, the lesson is God will come through. There, there, there's a day, friends, when, when He is going to right all wrongs. He will come through. There's a, a day to, to quote the Lord of the Rings when everything sad will, will come untrue. There's a, a day even when that, that struggle that you've been dealing with with all those years, that that. that well, that struggle will cease to be, that, that God will come through. We don't know when that is or, or, or what that will look like, but we can rest assured God will come through. Think if the, the messenger knew this, think about this. He, he said, why should I wait on the Lord any longer the day before God came through? You think he would have kept on waiting if he knew just tomorrow things are going to change. Tomorrow, your day of deliverance is set. We can have complete confidence, friends, that God will come through and we, we wait for Him in confidence. Friends, the, the reality is haven't you and I experienced God come through even in a, a far more amazing way than, than what we read here? This, this text, what, what this is meant to do is meant to point us to the greater deliverance that you and I have experienced in Christ. One that God's people were eagerly waiting for, and yet we get to 
to partake of together and see God come through. Let's not forget this. In the beginning of our, our text, we saw the, the woman crying out to the king for help, right? And what does he say to her? If God won't help you, how should I? He does nothing to help her, yet he questions the goodness of God. Yet here we see God does help His people. He, he, he rescues His people. And, 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 and yet not only does He simply give His people, you know, as the, the woman asked, you know, the, the king originally thought the woman was asking for food. And he said, where, where do you expect me to get that? I don't even have food to spare for you. Not only does God just give us food, He gives us His own Son. Right? Not only, in, in the beginning we saw the, the, the king here doing nothing to save lives. We actually see him trying to take the life of another, right? He's trying to take Elisha's life. And, and yet the, the good news of the gospel is that the, the king of heaven doesn't just sustain our lives, which would be more than this king does. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lays down his life in our place. You see the, the difference here? The king of heaven doesn't just alleviate our suffering. The king of heaven enters into our suffering and suffers in our place. See, friends, the, the good news these leopards share is meant to point us to far better news of a far greater deliverance from a far greater and better king that is worthy of our trust in him because he has spared no expense for us. And while we, we live this, this life of exile, as we continue to wait for the Lord, as we continue to wait for Him to, to meet us in those broken places of our lives, and, and whether He does that through miraculous deliverance as we, we've seen here, or Him giving us the grace we need for, for all the circumstances we find ourselves in. Because we've seen that our God in, in the, the good news of the Gospel has so decisively proved that He's for us that He cares for us more than we can ever care for ourselves, we, we can wait on Him to come through with absolute trust and confidence. The King's messenger asked the question, why should I wait any longer on the Lord? The question really is, in light of the good news, how could we not wait on Him? He, he has settled this question once and for all, that, that He is more for us than we could possibly even be for ourselves. Friends, we can wait on the Lord. And as we do, let us go to Him. Let us bring our cares. Let us bring our sorrows. Let us pour out our heart to Him. Let us hear from Him as He speaks His Word to us and helps us to, to reorient. And let us be reminded of His great love for us of the good news of the gospel. A love that's so great that we can trust Him in all our waiting. Let's pray.